right, folks, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. No opening monologue needed or desired today. Let's get right to the man of the hour, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Welcome, Mr. Speaker. Hey, Dr. Bennett, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Paul. Hope you are. Boy, this is really something. I, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to understand this this whole debate. So let me ask simple questions. Um, first of all, the impression one gets from watching TV is that there are about 115 Republicans for this and about 115 Republicans opposed. <laughs> you know, you you know how they do it. That's not yeah, the case, correct? Not even close to true. And I do think there's a lot of um. A lot of uh, misinformation or misconception out there. Um, there are some conservatives who wish we could go in a different direction, um, but what people just don't really realize is we have certain rules that are very limited on what we can put in this bill because it's all about what we call reconciliation. Yeah. What getting away from a Senate filibuster? The Senate, you can bring one bill through. That cannot be filibustered, but it can only have what we call fiscal policy in it. So, for instance, we're repealing the Obamacare subsidies, the Obamacare taxes, and the Obamacare mandates. But there's a lot of other stuff in Obamacare that you cannot repeal because of this rule of reconciliation. And there you can't put in the law through this bill things we want to put into law like interstate shopping across state lines or association health plans or medical liability reform. So we have broken this process into three phases. This first bill is phase number one, which we cannot have a filibuster on. They can't filibuster. It's called reconciliation. That basically repeals all the fiscal pieces of Obamacare, which effectively repeals Obamacare, the taxes, the mandates, the subsidies. And it puts Republican tax policy in its place, health savings accounts, high-risk pools, tax credits, for people who don't get health care at their job to go buy the health care plan of their choosing. It also allows the states to go back into regulating health care instead of the federal government. So we give freedom to people to buy whatever they want to buy. A radical departure from Obamacare. Yes. Phase two, Tom Price has so much discretion because that's what Obamacare did. It gave a lot of power to the, the secretary of HHS. He is going to use that discretion to further deregulate the market so that people can have the plan of their choice. Phase three are the bills we really like that we want to pass, but can be filibustered in the Senate. It's the things I just mentioned. It's, it's let people buy, bulk buy their health insurance and nationwide buying pools, uh, interstate shopping across state lines, medical liability reform, things like getting rid of the IPAB, things like that, they can filibuster. We're going to pass it in the House, send it to the Senate, and just go fight for it over there. Well, let me ask you about the conservative criticisms. I, what I've heard from several people is it does not repeal Obamacare. In fact, it opens by saying it amends Obamacare. Is that language no, there for the reason? Okay, go ahead. It, it repeals everything we can repeal in Obamacare okay. that reconciliation allows us to repeal. Okay. And that is all the fiscal guts of it, which effectively kills the law. It effectively, you know, basically eliminates the law. But look, Bill, you know me well. If we could repeal every line of it without facing a filibuster, we would. But the rules don't let us in the Senate. And so we're, we're repealing every single thing we possibly can while avoiding a filibuster because Chuck Schumer isn't going to provide eight votes in the Senate. We're not going to get 60 votes in the Senate to repeal Obamacare. They passed Obamacare with 60 votes. Democrats aren't going to help us repeal it. We have to do this with only Republicans, and that's why... We're, used, we're going after everything we possibly can with the rules we have and the tools we've got. 
Okay. No, I do know you well, and I know that you would. I believe that 100%. Would if if, if people, Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan, if the people, the critics, uh, many of them, your friends, my friends, uh, believed or granted, stipulated that those three phases you described would actually come into being, how much of their criticism would disappear? Because so much I of what I've heard... All of it would. Okay. I think almost all of it would disappear. Now, the good news is the two of the three phases are within our control as a Trump administration or a Republican Congress. Okay. Phase one, we as Republicans control. Phase two, Tom Price, Donald Trump control. Phase three, unfortunately, can be filibustered. And so two of the three of these are within Republican control. The third is not. But I think if you take it all together, that represents the plan we ran on. The plan we ran yes. on as House Republicans and the Better Way agenda that every Republican signed up for is, is this. And it's, but the, the problem is because of reconciliation, you get to break it into three phases. And there's no question you have to do it. I mean, I, my 11 years in radio, um, <clears throat> this was it. I mean, this was the topic. We had Jim Capretta every week. We had Tom Price every yeah. other week. This this was the issue. So I mean, let me just frame this again. What I hear is an argument about insufficiency. It's uh, it's Obamacare light and so on. But if you have these three uh, three phases, you don't. You eliminate all those objections. So it's That's a question right. of credibility. Right. Do they question whether you really mean to have the three phases, or you, they don't think you can get the three phases? I can't speak to that. I just don't okay. know. I think okay. some. I think it's a mixture. I think some people think we can't get some of the three phases. I think we can get some of them, but but maybe not all. I. I I think the trial lawyer lobby has got such a grip on the Democrats that we probably can't get I medical see. liability reform. So I think that's probably true. I think interstate shopping, I think we've got a good shot at that. I really feel confident about what we call association health plans. Let the small business person, the farmer, the restaurateur, the small business person buy their health insurance through nationwide pools to their trade associations like you know, the, the, the American yeah, Farm yeah. Bureau or the, the Restaurant Association. I think we can get that one passed. So it's a mixed bag on phase three as to what we really can get into law. But here's the point. We know we can, with our own control, repeal the entire fiscal architecture of Obamacare, which basically collapses Obamacare. It it effectively repeals Obamacare. Can we repeal some of the federal regulations on Obamacare? No, because reconciliation doesn't allow you to. But we're giving Republican tax policy to people to buy what they want to buy, and inviting the states to then set up their own regulatory systems, going around the federal government and going back to states' rights. We're also ending the Medicaid expansion and sending Medicaid back to the states. It's a defederalization of the Medicaid program. It's per capita block grants, something conservatives have been dreaming about for decades. Ronald Reagan started this idea back in the 70s, I think, getting Medicaid back to the states, capping its growth, the fixed growth rate, and letting the governors in the states run Medicaid. This is enormous conservative reform. This is this is what conservatives have been fighting for for 20 years. Yeah, that's right. Tax no, no, credits no, to buy what you want to buy, health savings accounts, Medicaid block granting. This is all extremely exciting. It is just not a 100% of what we want, and that's because of the crazy rules in the Senate. So it's most of what we want, but not 100%. And I will take most of what we want any darn day I can even if I can't get 100% of what I want. Let's ask one question from the other direction, other political direction, then something about engagement. Uh, What about the left that's waiting uh, for your passage of this to talk about people who are already on Obamacare who will lose coverage? So we're going to get all the hues and the cries on the left. We've seen it. It's been coming to our town hall meetings. Um, They want single-payer health care. They want the government to mandate what you must buy. They want the government to say, here is your insurance plan. Buy it, and we'll help you pay for it. 
That is an amazingly explosive entitlement. It actually isn't working. It is death spiraling. It is collapsing. So even this scheme that they put together is collapsing. The insurers are telling us next year the premium increases will be even more than this year, and you'll have even more pullouts. Only five states have, have one insurer left. A third of all counties in America have one insurer left. They're leaving the market because the architecture of Obamacare is collapsing. It's crashing. So we, this is really sort of a mercy mission for the country, which I is got you. stepping in front, finishing the law off, and replacing it with patient-centered, Republican-based health care reform that we've been dreaming about for years is what we're doing. How engaged is the president? Uh, is he going to really get behind this? Is he going to make Extremely, calls? Is he yeah. going to make visits? I talked to him twice yesterday. He's bringing members down there, talking to them. This we He helped us write this bill. This this bill we worked in hand in glove with the president, the vice president, Tom Price, Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, all working together on the same page, the House Republicans, the Senate Republicans, the White House. We literally have been working off on the same piece of paper, the same bill for months now. And the president is full on to this because what is this? It is him keeping his promise to repeal and replace this law. Getting rid of all the fiscal pieces of this law effectively repeals this law. And replacing it with a better system is exactly what we are doing. So it really is a fulfillment of the promises we've been making. And the president sees it that way. He's excited about it. He had a bunch of members down there yesterday, and he's talking to members, bringing them in. Some conservatives wish we had 100% of what we wanted. I do, too. But I am sure. not going to let the, the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. If I can get 85% of what I want, I'm going to take 85%. And um, I heard you say over and over again, we have the 218. You will have the 218. You're pretty confident. I am confident because we would be breaking our promise to the American people if we don't pass this. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, you know me. I'm not known for a little mischief. I heard a rumor that at the White House, you and McConnell had a plan. He was to distract the president, and you were going to steal his iPhone. Is that right? <laughs> no, okay. I actually haven't. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> no, I just, first I've heard of that, actually. I just want to get it around a little bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. We, I'm glad you could still laugh, though. You feel yeah. pretty confident about this, right? When might we see this resolve, Paul? I do. Well, it's a three-week process in the House. This is regular order. This week... It is the Commerce Committee, Ways and Means Committee. Next week, the Budget Committee. Week after, Rules Committee and the floor. Then it goes over to the Senate for two weeks. We have a five-week process here to, to repeal and replace this law and pass these bills. We're also going to be pacing, passing what we call our Phase 3 bills, like the Association of Health Plans and the rest. We're going to okay. be passing those bills in the next weeks as well. One last thing. Uh, I've, I've heard it said a number of times, you can't get to the other stuff like tax reform unless you do this. Is that a moral yeah, obligation or not? No, it's, it's, it's actually the mechanics of the budget. Okay, you can't okay. get rid of this budget uh, reconciliation before you can bring up a new one. I see. And the trillion dollars, the trillion dollars we repeal, we repeal all the Obamacare taxes. It's a trillion-dollar tax cut. You have to do that before you can do tax reform. Otherwise, the new tax system and tax reform would have to raise a trillion additional dollars. So literally, it's a trillion-dollar tax cut that we have to pass first so that our tax reform is a trillion dollars cheaper. I got it. I liked your comment very much. Uh, just if you could reflect on it for 30 seconds. This is the growing pains of a majority party. It's been, uh, yeah. it's been a long time to, to, with, the, with the president in the White House. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, this is really what I see here is we, for the last 10 years, the last two years of Bush when Pelosi and Reid ran Congress, and the last eight years of Obama, have been an opposition party. And in an opposition party, you do have some infighting. You do have conservatives sort of quarreling with each other about what, what makes the best policy. It's not a governing party. So
So we're going through the growing pains from being an opposition party to being a governing party that has to deliver. And that means Republicans, in this case, have to reach consensus with one another. Our governors, our senators, our House members, we have to compromise with one another and reach consensus in order to pass legislation with the majority and govern. That takes more work and it's harder to do than simply being an opposition party. And these are the kinds of growing pains we're experiencing. Mike Lee and Rand Paul pushing for another bill. Will that would that even get through the Senate? No, it won't. Um, what Rand is recommending is we just repeal it, period, and then the Democrats will help yeah. us replace it later. I just don't believe that that would ever happen. I just don't think it's a credible strategy. And it's cruel to just let Obamacare go on and, and people... Yeah, you would destroy the individual market um, okay. if you just repealed it without replacing it. And if you just yeah. stop and do nothing, um, yeah. as some are suggesting, then Obamacare goes on and it crashes. And and, right. and and that, too, destroys the individual market. We can't we don't we have a moral obligation okay. to stop bad things from happening and to fix problems. And then we own it. But that's what it means to be the governing party. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Speaker Ryan. Right. Thank you, Paul. Best to your great family. Bye bye. You bet. Nice to be with you, Dr. Bennett. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. My conversation with Speaker Ryan about Obamacare is a perfect segue to our next guest, Steve Wynn. He's the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and the new finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. In our previous interview, Steve explained in detail how Obamacare brought down the Democrats and paved the way for President Trump. In this segment, Steve explains why President Trump's campaign resonated with so many union members and how Republicans can continue to convert working-class Democrats into Republicans. Take a listen. Trump, Trump campaign had a lot of populist rhetoric in it, uh, appealing to the frustration and the dissatisfaction of people who made a paycheck. The, there was also the group that is having terrible time finding a job and that's a key ingredient of the future but they were all what about the people that were getting a paycheck and were watching it shrink either because the buying power had been reduced by the the reduced value of the dollar or because what they were getting before all of a sudden cost more because it was artificially imposed like health insurance things at walmart were more expensive because the dollar was worth less and their paychecks and then all of a sudden, the federal government slams them with an insurance increase based upon a murky kind of justification that uh, people are going to get better health care. Well, what really happened is a whole bunch of people got pulled, pushed into Medicaid and Medicare. And that was a raw reach for political power. There's as many people left uninsured now as there were before. I mean, I, I don't want to get into a debate yeah, on health care, sure, sure. and, and, and I can say this. It was an atrocious piece of legislation. Whatever good was in it was offset by all of the negatives of it. It was designed by people who were motivated by political power gains, electoral advantage, not by people who understood the system profoundly. And so... People in the unions, they're taxpayers. They're taxpayers and, and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters before they're union members. Yeah, I mean, okay, right. I belong to the point. Teamsters, or I I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a cook and I'm in the culinary union, and I've got a good job. 
but there's something happening to me here and my, my union can't stop it. And as a matter of fact, the union may be part of it by supporting Democrats that wanted to redistribute my income and who were irresponsible in their attention to the kind of things that are important to me. Oh, they talk a good game, but they did not deliver. As a matter of fact, they shined us on. And people, once they know you've been giving them the BS, they really get angry. And what you saw was an angry electorate, angry union members who didn't want it, who didn't want to be schmoozed with a lot of old-time political rhetoric and empty promises. They want action. And they see President Donald Trump as a man of action. Well, maybe some of his actions, you know, don't sit well with one group or another. Right. But they basically think that Donald Trump is going to give them a better deal. And my guess is they're dead right. Well, I believe they're dead right. Let's talk about what we've been circling around a little. And this is very interesting to me because, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be in the business of, as a friend of mine said, you should be tr doing something called translating Trump, you know, explaining <laughs> Trump. You know him better than I do, and you've known him longer. You've you've had you've given to Democrats. You have a lot of Democrats. You were just right. like he did, right? Yeah. Okay. When your Democrat friends call you now, I don't know if they still do. After you got this finance chair thing, I'm sure they do. Do, do you feel you have to explain Trump? Do they ask you to explain Trump? How do you explain Donald Trump? Do some people look at you incredulously and say, "How how can you be doing this?" I find some of that. Do you? Yeah, people say, I, mean, I just don't understand how if I, if I you have could any... support. The author of the Book of Virtues, how could you support Donald Trump, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if the friends that I have that are Democrats know me well enough that they'll, they may disagree with me, but uh, my pitch, my answer is, you know, engages the debate that is going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you believe that Barack Obama was good news... Well, then, okay. I think you're from Mars, you know, if you've been paying attention. Uh, now, the question is, how good is the news of President Trump? He got himself elected. If you think that's easy, try it out. Yeah. Donald Trump is a guy who is singular in his motivation. His energy is boundless. His, and I'm sure of this, his sense of patriotism is beyond question. Not something I would say about Barack Obama. I can't explain the, the Gitmo deal. I've never had a president look me straight in the eye and say, if you can keep your doctor, you can, and have that guy know that he was lying at the time. Yeah. I find that at 75 years old to be totally unacceptable in a public official, a bold-faced lying like that, or appointing someone of the IRS that takes the Fifth Amendment when they're asked about their job. I mean, all of that... There's, that's not at issue with Trump. Trump's all-American. President Trump is a patriotic, highly motivated businessman that was disgusted with the status quo and decided to jump in and do something about it. Now, that highly motivated, very successful businessman with overwhelming energy and dedication has now got to figure out how to manage the reins of the government of the United States of America. He brings to that job 
orders of magnitude more experience than his predecessor, who had no experience at anything. Trump is a guy who learns how to do things fast. As President Trump, I expect that the learning curve is going to be radically fast. Mm -hmm. I've watched him in the last month begin to change at a rate and in a way that I wouldn't have predicted. The presence, moving into the White House, the Oval Office, he is in awe of it. One of the most delicious experiences I've ever had in life. I, I have been to the Oval Office when President Clinton was occupying it. It was a great privilege to, to do so. We had played golf, and he invited me there after golf to sit around and relax for a while. But I had never been in the residence. And I joined President Trump with my wife, and I watched Donald in the White House so thrilled and so respectful of it and what it stood for. He showed me the Gettysburg Address, and the man was moved. It sits there in the Lincoln bedroom under glass. No, President Trump, the Donald Trump of The Apprentice and President Trump of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue are two quite different people. And I think that's going to become more and more clear as the days and weeks roll by. But we've got to give him a little time to get his, his feet wet. <laughs> it's such an enormous change. I, 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 would you mention, I, I, again, the, the Monet? Would you tell that story? <laughs> it's wonderful because you, you know, know art you he, know he, knows, art. he knows I'm an art collector Yeah. he says come here Steve look at this Monet isn't this fantastic he says this must be worth a fortune I says it's, it was the River Sen of 1894 1895 I said oh it's worth millions and millions of dollars he says the art in this place is like that and the President of the United States can bring any painting here look at this portrait of Abraham Lincoln isn't this wonderful how magnificent is this place? He, he yeah. has tremendous respect for the job and for this country. And, those, and he has intelligence. Those are the characteristics that I missed. Oh, I, I think Barack was smart enough in terms of IQ. I was never sure of his attitude towards the country. Trump, Trump is an all-American, red-blooded, sure. star-spangled banner um, guy. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, let's switch gears for our next segment. We're joined now by Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group, and Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. By the way, uh, I am colleagues of these gentlemen in the same American Strategy Group. Uh, by the way, to get more information, go to AM, that's the letter A, the letter M, strategy.org, or for more information, go to facebook.com slash amstrategy. Now, guys, Steve Bannon recently gave a speech in which he uh, broke down the three pillars of the Trump presidency. We're going to focus in on those pillars in a moment, uh, and I want to talk a lot about one of them, economic nationalism. But first, uh, and this is in the news and very worrisome, very clearly, prominently in the president's mind, as you see how many references he makes to it, uh, missile defense. 
Brian Kennedy, you've long been a missile defense expert. i got to ask you about the U.S. deploying any missile systems in South Korea. I think it's called the THAAD. T-H-A-D-D. Yeah. What's what's going on here? Well, I mean, the, all these tests by North Korea are of great concern both to South Korea and our Japanese allies. And so we have deployed the THAAD, the Terminal High Altitude Air Defense there. And it will provide a, a, a limited defense for our troops in South Korea, uh, for South Korea more broadly, partly for Japan. Uh, it won't do much to stop any missile that may be aimed at the United States, but um, it's, a, it's a good start for now, and uh, there's a lot more to do. But the president was right to, uh, at least symbolically and probably even just as a political matter, to deploy it over there. Will it protect, will this missile defense protect South Korea from missile attack, or would it protect Japan? Because if I read right, uh, two of those missiles fell 200 miles from uh, the Japan coast. What they'll, what uh, that will do is create an air of uncertainty for the North Koreans. The system is not yet perfect, but the North Koreans won't know whether or not if they launch a missile attack against South Korea or Japan, they'll probably assume we can shoot down one of those missiles. And then the United States may do something militarily against North Korea. So it adds real doubt in the North Korean mind whether they should do that or not. And so from that regard, even if the system is not perfect, it will be a great asset for the United States over there and good for President Trump to have done that. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the only thing I thought of was that our, in our last podcast with you guys, uh, one of the questions was missile defense generally, and you said we need to do a lot more. So I was wondering in watching these news reports, as people read that we've sent the system over to help protect South Koreans, the assumption of a lot of Americans is, oh, we have it. We have the capability. We know how to do this. And that will therefore jump to the conclusion that we have it to defend the United States. But we're not there yet. Right, Brian? No, we're not, unfortunately. And the uh, it does give the illusion we're doing something. and it, it will be something for our troops in South Korea and the South Korean people. But we need to do a lot more. The Chinese, for instance, screamed that we were putting those defenses over there. Now, they know perfectly well that there are intercontinental missiles aimed at the United States are not going to be shot down by that. But you can see the political dynamic that we do one thing and they will do another. And I think I think President Trump is playing this just right. It's not perfect. Let's put something over there and let's let's get the North Koreans on their heels about this. Good. Great. All right. Let's go to our three pillars of the Trump presidency. Here's how Steve Bannon, assistant to the president, uh, special counsel of the president, broke it down. National security. We just talked a little bit about that. We'll revisit this question in a later uh, edition of this uh, podcast. Uh, Economic nationalism, which we're about to talk about, and the deconstruction of the administrative state, which we'll also talk about later. Let's talk about economic nationalism. That's our focus. Joel Farkas, what does President Trump mean by economic nationalism? President Trump means uh, simply that America can export what it produces and Americans can consume what America produces. So we produce products American exports and we consume products America produces. and he, he, uh, President Trump is continually being lambasted for not understanding economics and global trade. But he does understand that, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty much unassailable that that's a very reasonable approach. Okay. Um, uh, you've said before 
that uh, a big piece of this, and I know you've been talking about it long before it was fashionable to talk about it, Joel, that energy independence is critical to uh, economic success. Is it critical to this kind of economic nationalism as well? Energy independence is a wonderful phrase that most critics don't understand. It's extremely important to, uh, to economic nationalism. Um, there's several things energy, energy production does. First of all, the United States becomes an exporter of energy. We now are able to export as opposed to import. Now, additionally, the United States can produce energy and use it domestically without importing it. That simple construct changes the balance of trade that that economics economists are always arguing over it by doing nothing other than producing energy and consuming it domestically and reducing the importation of energy from from other countries uh, it's critically important and there's a whole lot of reasons why the united states has been able to do that and we can talk about that further but one one major reason is that by producing shale production, the energy industry used to be spending an enormous amount of money, build a lot of capital infrastructure, and the industry basically was set up to have a, a long-term contract for prices set up and a specific destination for whatever is produced to be sent. The fact that we can now in a matter of days, drill, drill a, 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 a shale well and have complete flexibility and lower capital costs, we have basically, the United States singularly has basically taken the, the, the energy industry and created a circumstance where, they can, where, where we can sell energy on a spot market basis, not on a long-term basis. We can sell energy to a country that needs it now a country that can use it 30 days from now or okay. anytime. So we, right. we basically changed the entire industry. So, and, and this, this makes us as a country more competitive, clearly, right? We are the most competitive. Anybody else around the world that anyone talks about, any other country, uh, doesn't have that flexibility. We have an enormous resource, one of the largest resources in the world, combined with the ability to deliver that resource almost instantaneously. Okay. Let me ask you, uh, uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was going to add to that. I mean, one of the great reasons we have shipped so many jobs abroad is that our costs of production are higher here in the United States. Whatever lowers those production costs, most especially energy, is going to be good for the American manufacturer good for the American worker. And so when Trump talks about energy independence, he is simply talking about making us more competitive all the way around, not merely just for the good okay. of the energy industry, but good I, for the economy broadly. Go ahead. If I could add one more, one more comment to that. It is settled economic science that abundant energy keeps costs low, low costs keeps inflation low, and low inflation raises living standards. There's no dispute that, that those events occur when you have abundant, reasonably cost energy. Would you mind if I substituted a fact for the phrase settled economic science? 
I just sure. I just I I, I've I've heard so many things out of settled economic science that turned out you know not to be. True. I, I you're you're right. That's you funny. know what I'm I was saying. being funny. Now you were being big. Funny. You were being funny. But it, 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 good. No, but you're right. You're right. That is uh, when that happens. That is that is the effect. Let's talk about trade and economic nationalism. And, I, and I'm going to throw a, a, a kind of oddball question at the both of you based on something I just read. There's a lot of talk, Joel, about a cross-border fee. Some people are calling it a tariff. Uh, how would that work? Would it work? Are you in favor of that? This seems to be part, at least in the president's mind, of economic nationalism. I believe the topic of tariffs and cross-border taxes is uh, – is is overblown by all of President Trump's critics. Economists have some sort of sacrosanct assertion that global trade and tariffs and restrictions creates these spiraling, shrinking, devastated economies. Hey, Joel, that's and, settled economic science. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. And they and and, and they and the economists, his critics. Are, are, are accusing uh, these, these sort of uh, totalitarian p- pursuits by President Trump as becoming these self-fulfilling uh, prophecies. Yeah. What's being ignored is every other thing that President Trump is doing, which is different than a trade or tariff discussion. The, he is opening up uh, innovation. He is opening up the ability to export in this country. He is eliminating restrictions. He is, he, he, he is reducing taxes. Any, anybody who likes to paint President Trump as being some construct of the 1930s Hitler depression area uh, time is ignoring that all those things I just mentioned also occurred in the 1930s. Yeah. President Trump cannot be called a totalitarian if he is opening up the ability for others, not him, others to innovate and produce. All right, we have to leave it there. Thanks, Brian, and thanks, Joel. This has been The Bill Bennett Show. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes.